Hi, I'm Bethany, and I'm on a journey of discovering what loving oneself actually looks like. I want to invite you into my process, hear some of my crazy stories, as well as hear some amazing people with wisdom and insight give their take on what it looks like to love yourself well, and in turn, be able to love people well too. Come on, let's go. Hey, welcome again to episode 14 of Like Me, Like You. Um... I was just talking to my uh, roommate and my friend slash more like a sister, Amy, and we were talking about just different stories that I experienced and kind of, you know, what to talk about next. Sometimes it it always seems like, well, this is just stories about me and my experience, you know, and I forget what people like to hear and what people want to hear. And, um, and she reminded me just of my experience as a funeral director. And so I thought I would just kind of lay out the groundwork as well for just an understanding and a history and how I became a funeral director and a mortician. Um, I know in previous episodes, I've kind of referenced it a little bit about like what I had to do to go to school and how I had to get licensed and sitting down for my national board exams and all of those things. But this is more so of the reason behind the why. And uh, how it how it happened and how it came about. And it just kind of fell in my lap, kind of, the idea of it did and the history behind it. But also just the humanity in it. One thing about being uh, in funeral service, uh, there is the, there's the nitty gritty of it. There's the quote unquote dirty work of it. And that's dealing with deceased. That's dealing with the bodies. That's preparing the bodies washing the bodies, embalming the bodies, dressing the bodies, cosmetizing, casketing, all of that, that is behind doors, behind closed, you know, in, in private areas where you're just practicing uh, kindness and you're, you're being respectful uh, to someone and you're providing a service for the, the very last thing that you can provide and help them with. But there's also dealing with the families that are left to, um, mourn and grieve and uh, essentially deal with a loss on such a great level. And to be honest with you, I know I've said before that, um, you know, death brings out either the very best in people or the very worst. And I've seen a good mix of the two. I've seen some real human moments Um, as a joke. Well, this isn't a joke, but we used to joke around in one of the funeral homes in Georgia that I worked at. I broke up the most fights in one day, <laughs> which was three. I broke up my, I am five, four, and I broke up three fist fights in one day at three different services, if that gives you any indication of the stories that I have in my back pocket about experience as a funeral director. Um, I will tell you just as a as a, a tidbit of info, there is a podcast out there called Neighbors, and it's a guy named Jacob Lewis. And I don't know if he's currently doing the podcast anymore, but when I first moved to Nashville, I was working at a grocery store, and his friend was working alongside of me and loved my stories and would always ask, can you tell us a story? The, the store would close. We would kind of get groceries up on the shelf and and I would have people kind of around me like, OK, tell tell us about this. Like, tell me about a time you experienced this. Can you tell us one of your funeral home stories? Can you you know, and as we worked, I would just kind of like tell a crazy story. And um, 
one day I was approached by this guy and he said, listen, I've got a friend who has a podcast. I think he would love to interview you. And I was like, all right. It was my first experience, even listening to podcasts. I didn't really like I knew they were out there, but I didn't realize the audience that they had. I didn't know so many people loved podcasts, you know, and um. So I got a phone call from this guy, Jacob, and he kind of interviewed me on the phone like, hey, I heard you had a really good story. I I heard I, w- I would love to be able to interview you. My podcast is called Neighbors, and it's about how you are basically, you are neighbors with people that have these extraordinary stories or really impactful stories. And you have no idea because they're just your neighbors. Like you don't ever find out. And he said, so just kind of like the extraordinary in the ordinary. And so I started to tell him just about my story. And he was like, OK, I've heard enough. Let me come over. And he came over to my house and I made him tea because that's what Canadians do. Made him tea and had cookies. And he came with his recording device and we sat down and I just told him about my history and how I became a funeral director. And it aired on Neighbors and he was affiliated with uh, NPR and it played, you know, across all the airwaves. They played it on the radio and I had a couple people contact me. I'm just like, I just heard you on the radio. This is insane. You know, tell my story. So... Uh, and there is an, a there is another podcast out there of me explaining my story. But today I just on my podcast want to give you a kind of um, a history as as we kind of going to dive into the upcoming episodes of uh, life, my life as a funeral director and as an apprentice, as a woman in funeral service, because uh, the funeral industry is pretty male dominated. So um it was just kind of work that I think they didn't think women wanted to do. Um, but women are so compassionate and so uh, geared toward um, comfort and helping people grieve that I think it's actually a perfect position for a woman to have. So uh, we're just going to dive in over the course of the next episodes and talk about the humanity of death and the humanity of grieving and what I've witnessed with people and how they handle it. So I worked in a hospital in the suburbs of Chicago for 10 years called Sherman Hospital. I started in the the uh, tele unit, which was a heart unit, went to CCU for a little bit, which is a critical cardiac unit. And then I went to postpartum, uh, which is, uh, of course, babies were born and after uh Mom and da- moms had babies in labor and delivery. They recovered in a, the postpartum unit. From there, I went to the NICU, which is preemies and sick newborns. And that is where I worked the bulk of my healthcare uh, experience was in the NICU. I was a tech. I did all kinds of like sur- sur- pre-surgical stuff for the neos. I also did... Um, Anything that you could imagine. I helped draw blood. I took care of two be adopted babies. I helped take care of uh, babies addicted to born addicted to drugs. I helped uh, with IVs. We helped with surgical procedures, circumcisions, um, antibiotics. uh, You know, you name it. Uh, I also did all the ordering for the unit. I worked with the pharmacies. I kind of did whatever the neos needed, the neonatologists needed me to do. So it was just a mixed bag of many things, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed my time there. Um, it gave me a lot of experience. But um, I just felt like I wanted to do more. I wanted to have an actual career. I wanted to make more of myself, uh, make more money for myself, and so on. So I was, I think, 27, and I decided, like, okay, I'm going to go back to school. 
And I know I told you about the guy that I dated for six years and how uh, he would kind of talk me out of going to school. But after I had broken up with him, I decided this is the opportunity that I needed to go back. And so I just started to go get my general eds classes of like what everybody needs to proceed and go on. So that's like your math, your English, you know, your sociology, your psychology, all the stuff that you need uh, in the college system to go on into a program. They require you have so many classes of just gen eds. And so I was working through my gen eds and I applied to get into the nursing program. And unfortunately, it was just a really competitive field. I had good grades. But they weren't good enough. So I had like, I think my GPA was like a 3.5. There was, I was competing against everybody that had 4.0s, you know, and then they had, there was only like, I think a 40 seat capacity for the nursing program uh, at the school I attended. And so they had to take so many uh, women. They had to take so many men. They had to take so many minorities. They had to take so there was like a criteria of of people that they had to fill to get in in each class. And unfortunately, I just never got in any of them. I was just kind of I didn't I wasn't a single mom. I didn't have, you know, all of these things that were uh, that they chose to like push people ahead into the program I didn't have. So I was just waitlisted. I was just waiting and didn't know what to do. And I was really bummed at first, to be honest with you. And uh, there was a couple in our church. My dad was a pastor, of course. You've heard me talk about this so much. He was a pastor at a church in the suburbs of Chicago in a place called Carpentersville, which is amazing to this day. I miss Carpentersville so much. Um, Amazing food. Had the best Chinese food I've ever had in my whole entire life. (laughs) New Hunan, you have my heart forever. (laughs) And um, really good pizza, believe it or not. There's a place called Village Pizza in Carpentersville. If anyone ever hears this in Illinois, drive yourself to New Hunan and Village Pizza. You will not be disappointed. And um, met some really great friends. Holly Poole, who's now Holly Griffin. Um, you know, I know the Dowlings who are amazing, um, and some just other families that, uh, just Scott and Vicky, um, and not Scott and Vicky, sorry, Scott, <laughs> Scott Vickers and his wife, not Vicky, and their children, and just like really good friends I made out there that are just lifelong friends, lifetime friends. Papa Oral, you know, is like a spiritual dad and his wife, Rosemary. Um, they're just amazing people. They'll always hold places in my heart, have spoke life into me, have encouraged me. Um, and so I was just in this tr- weird transition of like, I was now single. I had decided to like go to school and throw my life into work and education. And I was just at this point where I was waiting. I was I hurried up to wait, which is just the worst feeling in the world. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And we had a, a tragedy in our church. We had a young Hispanic couple in our church. They had three kids under the age of seven. Uh, Vicky uh, could was spoke broken English. There was a very large Hispanic population in Carpentersville. And Ted, her husband, worked in construction. And he was just kind of like the doer of all things for their family. He was a translator. He was the worker. He did all the stuff. He, you know, helped his kids in school and all of that. And they had three kids, which are precious children. And there was a tragedy. And Ted had fallen off of a roof and unfortunately had passed away, tragically. And 
Vicky didn't know what to do. She had never, you know, she's in a foreign country. Her husband dies. She has three kids under the age of seven, doesn't know what to do. So we call the church. My dad decides, okay, we've got to help her. We've got to help figure this out for her. And of course, my grandfather was a funeral director. We was raised in a funeral home. And my dad, when he was younger, helped my grandfather. I think it was probably just like a rite of passage of like, you want to marry my daughter, you got to help me a little bit. And let's see where you're, let's see what you're willing to do here. And so my dad, you know, in his younger years, helped my grandfather with removals, which is going to pick up a remains and bring it back to the funeral home, as well as he helped him like dig graves and some other things that he was just a helping hand to my dad, so, or my grandfather. So my dad, you know, kind of has a, a basic working knowledge of funerals and um, what's required and the steps that are are needed and the cost of funerals and things like that. So I believe the church kind of had a benevolent fund set aside that we were tapped into to be able to help Vicky pay for things. But also my dad felt very protective of her, did not want her to be uh, taken advantage of. So he went with her uh, to plan services and unfortunately um, picked a funeral home that we only knew because of its location. So had no experience with it. Our church was a very young church, which meant we didn't have a lot of elderly people. There weren't a lot of funerals. So this is my dad's, as a pastor, first experience uh, having to contact and connect with funeral homes um, and picked the wrong one, which is just such a bummer. And um, this funeral director, I have never, I didn't meet him, but after I became a funeral director, I heard of him and I heard of his horror story. So um, unfortunately, it it was just a bad experience. And it was the thing, though, that got me in it. So um, my dad takes Vicky to this funeral home and he's racist, which is awful. I'm not one to scream racism a lot, but this man, you know, he basically told her that her children are not a welcome in the funeral home because um, in his experience, Hispanic children are misbehaved. So he didn't want his he didn't want her children there. You know, it was like that type of experience where he was consistently like um, not helpful. He went out of his way, it seems to not be kind. I think at the end of it, my dad, who's one of the kindest, most forgiving people I've ever known, um, ended up contacting the Better Business Bureau because it was that terrible, which that's just not my dad. So if my dad had to do that, that's it should give an explanation of how terrible things were. And I can remember showing up for the visitation and this funeral director sitting in his office in the foyer or in the vestibule of the funeral home with the door open and his feet up were his feet up up on his desk flipping through a magazine like just everything about him screamed indifference and lack of care and lack of compassion i can remember seeing ted uh, in the casket and he like still had dried blood like things that i know even with my limited knowledge of funeral service back then when I knew nothing about it, I, I at least knew you could have washed him. Like you could have you could have taken care of him. And that's that's just a basic kindness to show someone. And he didn't do it. Um, it was just terrible. F- flowers were being delivered to the funeral home. And my sister and I were placing funerals or placing, pardon me, flowers Um and setting up the visitation area. I didn't even know what I was doing then, but we were doing it. And I can remember being so frustrated and so angry. And I remember looking at my dad and saying, I don't even know how to do this, but I do a better job than this guy, you know? And my dad kind of looked at me and was like, why don't you do this? 
Like you are waiting to get into the nursing program and nobody's calling you. You're just sitting to wait. Like, why don't you apply for the? Why not? Let's look around and see. And I think there was um, like a level of righteous anger in me. I'll say, I don't know how righteous it was, but it was definitely anger at the, um, at just the audacity of someone to not care about people like this. Like it bothered me. And so I started to look around and I found that Warsham College of Mortuary Science was, like I said, 30 minutes from my house. And in my other episode, I said it was the Cadillac of colleges. That is not what it's called. It was actually called the Harvard of Mortuary Schools, not the Cadillac of Mortuary Schools. I don't know what I was talking about, but it it has a very prestigious name. It was really, um, it was one of the oldest mortuary schools in the nation. I think when I went to it, it was 101 years old. And uh, so I applied because I, of my background and my grades, I got it in immediately um, and went to school. That's where I met Carson. Of course, if you listen to the past episodes, you know all about Carson and and uh, all of it. And so what I realized um, was that I went through an accelerated program. I sat for my national board exams And I passed my national board exams. And the next step was to become a licensed apprentice. And in Illinois, they make you uh, serve an apprenticeship under a licensed funeral director for one year. And you have to provide at least, I think it's 20 services and uh, funerals that you planned, that the bodies that you embalmed, as well as all the procedures and all the things that they require that you have a full understanding of what it is to be a funeral director slash embalmer. Um, in the state of Illinois, it is a dual license. You are, If you are a funeral director, you are an embalmer. Uh, in Tennessee, it's different. In Tennessee, you can have a funeral director's license that is separate from an embalmer's license. Um, you could either be just an embalmer or just a funeral director. In Illinois, you, it is a dual license. You are both. You are one and the same. So um, in order for you to get your funeral director's license, you also have to embalm. So it's a little bit different, and it's mortuary uh, law and mortuary licenses is one of the only things that varies so differently from state to state to state. So it made it really interesting in trying to transfer licenses and things like that because you could try to go to Michigan, and they require a whole different gamut of things in order for you to get licensed. So a lot of people stay where they're at because they've worked so hard to get their licenses. Um, So it just, it it was a lot to know, a lot of knowledge to understand and a lot to try to work through. So I started my apprenticeship. I took a position in um, Washington, Illinois. Uh, It's where I was in the tornado. (laughs) If you want to listen to a previous episode, I was in a tornado in Washington. After the tornado, I had to leave and I finished my, I did six months of an apprenticeship there. I transferred my apprenticeship back up to Elgin, Illinois, where I served under a funeral director in Elgin, Illinois, named Tom. And that was a wild, wild ride. Um, uh, That was a crazy year, but I didn't realize how much the Lord had his hand on my life. In funeral service and working through the apprenticeship, that is where I decided and quickly walked away from the Lord and then decided to live life just on my own. Um, and without the Lord, I thought anyway, that I could do things on my own. I became a, a workaholic. I worked all of the time. After my apprenticeship uh, finished in Elgin, Illinois, I 
worked for a crematory in Algonquin, Illinois, the next town over, and it was a closed crematory, which means we provided cremation services to funeral homes, not to families. So we provided cremation services because funeral homes in cities in um, city limits that were not granted crematory permits would come to us or we would go to them and we provided the cremation services that they would provide to families so we were not competitors we were not trying to steal clients we weren't doing anything like that we uh, just provided services so I had contacts with many funeral homes because I was constantly in and out um, making removals picking up bodies bringing them back to the crematory cremating them bringing their remains or cremains back to the families, back to the funeral homes, and so on. And it was just a, a rotating door of picking up bodies, bringing them, <laughs> cremating them, bringing them back to the funeral home. And then at night, I was on call for the crematory, and I would pick up bodies for um, a, a company that provided cremation services, and I would pick up the bodies at night. Um, as well. So I was working during the day cremating people. I was working at night picking up bodies and bringing them back to the crematory. And in between between the process of picking up bodies and bringing them back to the crematory, you also had to get a cremation uh, permit or cremation license from the state. So you there is a waiting period. So you get these bodies. The families want them cremated. You just can't cremate them right away. There's policy and procedure and there's allowances that you have to walk through. You have to get permission. So I was just explaining to Amy <clears throat> my roommate about cremation and about legal next of kin. Uh, so this is where you get into mortuary law and this could kind of get boring. There's lots of like uh, boring things about it. But basically legal next of kin means that any services that you provide, you have to get permission from the legal next of kin in the family. So if you are burying somebody's husband and the wife is alive, she is his legal next of kin. If his wife is no longer alive and he has three children. His children equally are their legal next of kin. Um, so cremation is permanent and final. So when you cremate a body, you have to get permission from, let's say, all three children. They all have to agree. There are some states where it's majority rule. So if there's three kids, two agree and one doesn't, proceeds anyway. There are some states where it requires everyone or nobody's getting cremated type of a situation. So... It's these legalities that open the door to a lot of humanity. <laughs> you get to see people either handle things well or not. And so if you could imagine if there are tensions with family already in play and then someone passes away, someone dies, and there is an inheritance also in the mix, um, or there is bad blood between people, or there is bad blood between in-laws and people. I remember one of the fights that I broke up one time was in Georgia. And man, this woman died on vacation. Her and her husband were on vacation in Florida, and they died. She died. She passed away in her sleep. And one of the first things that her husband did was he went to the bank and emptied their bank account. So... That is cause like, why did you do that? Why? What is that about? You know, so then, you know, and who knows? Fear makes people do crazy things. So does so does death and loss. People are not in the right frame of thinking. Some people are making grave errors and they have no idea why. There's also a lot of ignorance around death. People don't know. So people are money hungry. They're fearful of their families taking their money. So or they're fearful of funeral homes robbing them of their money or taking advantage of them. So they have a savings account worth of, you know, 
$15,000 and they say to the family like, okay, it's sitting there. So when I pass away, use that to pay for my services. What they don't realize is banks won't release that. You don't have permission to go in and just take money out of your dead family's account. You have to provide a death certificate. There's a process. So there is a lot of steps to take. And there are a lot of laws surrounding protection of both funeral homes, banks, finances, and families that you have to wade through and work through, which causes sometimes major issue. So in regards to the family in Florida, this woman had a life insurance policy. This is just to give you a little example. If this is boring to you, I'm so sorry, but this just explains people's frame of thinking. So she had a life insurance policy And with a life insurance policy, you have someone that it is designated to go to when you die. They are in charge of all of that money. They get it all. You have a choice to split it up. Like for for mine, I have a life insurance policy and I have most of it going to my parents and I have like a little percentage of it going to my brother and I have a little percentage of it split between my nieces (laughs) because I don't know why I did that, but this is just what I did. So um, my parents get the bulk of it to take care of all my needs and whatever they want to do and Judah gets a little smidgen of it and my nieces, Sadie and Emma, get some of it. And that's just to help them. I thought it'd be a way to help them, at least in my death. Maybe they get to go to school or something like that. So um, so anyway, you can split it up. You can assign it just to one person in, in particular, or it can be split up to multiple people. Well, this woman who died had a life insurance policy, and the person that was in charge of it and the person that was the heir to all of it was her mother, not her husband. Um, and so the husband walked in thinking that, He had a way to pay for all the funeral services and that he had total say over everything. And he didn't. In funeral homes, the person signing the paperwork and agreeing to the funeral services that are provided are the person who is paying for the services. So you run into this issue of like, well, I'm the husband and I'm the legal next of kin. I get say over what the funeral is that you provide, the services that you provide. But also if they're not paying for it, we now have to turn to the person who's paying for it as well and get permission from them too because the husband's making all these demands that he can't pay for. So if you could imagine you have tension and you have discord between a a husband and mother-in-law and the mother-in-law is the one who's actually in fact in charge of all of the money (laughs) and she is uh, very suspicious of a husband who just emptied out their bank account. So this comes out all in the arrangements conference. I'm sitting across this family just taking um, general information. There is information that we had to get for death certificates, for um, you name it. Like it's like a whole a whole system of finding out like and their father's name and their father's name and their mother's name and their mother's name on both sides and their birth date and what county they were born in and all this statistical information. And uh, so as I'm getting this information, we're planning services, the husband and the grandmother or the mother-in-law start to argue about what should be done. And the grandmother throws in the card of like, well, I'm paying for all of this. I am the legal heir. I am in charge of her life insurance policy. And um, he lunges across the table at his his mother-in-law and grabs her and they start to have a physical altercation. And this was the second fight of the day in my round of three fights. (laughs) And I pulled a total mom move and I slammed my hands down on this table and I said, hey. And they both looked at me and I said something very, like, very, like, uh, crazy. I said something along the lines of like, this is my house. (laughs) 
Like, you will not do this in my house. Like, I know. Like, you can take this outside. I will have, I won't even, I won't even partake in services. You can have another funeral home. Come and pick up, pick up your wife and you can go elsewhere. I was like, enough. I am done. And so they both sat down like little children. It's amazing how quickly you can get somebody to pay attention by literally just amping up your crazy card just a smidgen, just a little bit. And so um, finally was able to work through and plan services and the grandmother sign over the insurance policy and be able to pay for the services because, you know, it's at the end of the day, it's about their, it's about his wife. It's about her daughter. It's not about them. And that's what I realized. There are so many times that actually funeral services are more for the living that are left behind than for the person who has actually died. And that's really sad. It's a, it's amazing to me to see families come together and pay respects to and honor a life lived versus family members that make it all about them and their loss and what they've experienced and what's happened to them. It is two totally different tones and it is a wild ride. It makes it makes it really easy to love people well when you see them loving their loved one well. And it it became a little bit more difficult to show the same compassion to people who are just hurting and out of their own hurt and out of their own wounds, um, doing terrible things that they will one day look back on and absolutely regret. And even during that time, I didn't know how to hear God's voice then, but I knew looking back that he was able to use me to talk to people in just compassion. There was there were so many times that I sat across the table and I was in boldness. I don't even know where I got this boldness from. I, I didn't used to be this bold, but in boldness would say to these people, is this how you want to remember what you've done? Is this how you want your family to remember what you've done? They, they will hold this against you forever. That they want to mourn the loss of their sister, but you want to buy a boat. So you're going to have this instead and you're going to take it and you're, you're not going to care. You know, there was, I remember dealing with a woman who's, she said it was her husband and uh, he passed away and she wanted simple cremation. You know, she wanted simple, it's all she could afford. She wanted simple cremation and, you know, she didn't know what she was going to do. And when it came down to the legality of explaining like, okay, you're the legal next of kin. And she said, yes, I am. I said, okay. And I started to notice when asking that statistical information, hey, um, when was your wedding date? What date did you get married? Do you have a wedding certificate to provide? Do you? She didn't. She didn't know what wedding day. She didn't know her own wedding day. What lady doesn't know her wedding day? What lady doesn't know the day she got married? And didn't have a wedding certificate to provide me and didn't have the information that I needed about where he was born and his social security number and things like that will come to find out she wasn't his wife. He actually had two children that uh, she removed. She removed him from their lives and he died. His own children had no idea that he had even passed away. And unfortunately, had to deliver the news to these two children. And at the same time, you know, here I find myself protecting this man who has passed away from a woman trying to get his belongings and get his things who thought she had cleverly kind of weaseled into his life to get access to all of his belongings and all of his things in his home. And, you know, she was going to take his home, his own home that belonged to his children she was going to take us home. Things like that, that you will, you won't believe what you 
kind of see in people until you see it. And it's it's uh, it's very shocking and it's very um, rattling. But then also, you know, there's people uh, that you meet and your heart just breaks for your heart just goes out to, you know, uh, parents losing their children and you, you know, you hold them as they weep. And I, I can remember you know, as just a last story going off of just explaining the humanity of people. I I remember there was this young man and he was a karate uh, teacher, instructor, and he was very successful in this arena of life. He had all kinds of belts. He had a studio and he would teach and he won competitions and all of these things. And unfortunately, he tragically died in a car accident. It was just awful. And um, my whole thought process in regards to embalming and what they call restorative art, which is the rebuilding of a human remains to make them to be able to be seen again, you know, giving family an opportunity to say goodbye visually. And my whole theme was, well, I'll give it the old college try because it can't get any worse than what it is now, especially when you have homicide, suicide, or things like accident, like a car wreck. And here was this 27-year-old, very active, very fit, handsome man laying on my table. And I got approached by one of the male funeral directors and said, hey, would you would you give it a try? And I said, yeah, I can get, I can give it a try. We can't make any promises. You know, we let the family know, like, we're going to try our hardest. Um, if you could give us as many pictures of him as possible, we're going to try as, as, hard, as much as we can so that he can be seen and people who loved him can mourn him and get closure, you know? And so I did my best, and I think I was probably hovered over this poor guy for about six or seven hours, just rebuilding his hands, his neck, and his face. And um, I remember that I was nervous because it was it's like, a, okay, well, the family's about to see him. Like, this is it. He either looks like him or he doesn't, you know, and there's a sense of failure if he doesn't, you know. And um, I can remember being in the office, and one of the funeral directors came in to get me, and he said, hey... Um, can you come out here with me? Uh, the mom of of this deceased gentleman wants to talk to you. And I thought, oh, no. Okay. And so I, I walked out and I said, hi. And she said, "Are you, is it you? And I said, uh, is it me? And she said, are you the one who worked on my son? And I said, yes, ma'am, I am. And she collapsed in my arms and she started to sob on my shoulder. And she said, thank you for letting me see my baby one more time. Like, thank you. Then she sobbed. She was sobbing. And I was sobbing because the gravity of actually what I was providing hit me. I'd never, ever had someone thank me <laughs> for uh, for allowing them to see their baby boy one more time, you know? And in those moments, all of the tediousness, all of the frustration, all of the family fights and kind of like the dark side of humanity, it all kind of washed away. And this became very... Uh, very real as to like, ah, oh, this is why, this is why this is a thing that I wanted to do to begin with. Um, so if you want to stick around with me the next couple episodes, we're going to be able to dive into the humanity of people and the experiences that I've had um, taking care of people who have, you know, been murdered, who have taken their own lives, who have died tragically in accident, who have been older, you know, and not only that, get to see Actually, these people who've lived, for the most part, hidden lives, you know, we kind of only see what people let us see. But in death, you get a real, a real big story, a real true story of actually who they are and what they're like. So stick around and uh, 
we'll dive into those in the upcoming weeks. All right, see you later. Bye.